Wright State University's number one stop for film talk and classic rock. It's Reels and Riffs. And now here's your host, fresh from the master control studio at WHIO and the only random in radio, it's Random Allen. Welcome back to Reels and Riffs, the only show on college radio where you can hear classic rock, the latest movie news, and bad name puns wrapped into one package. We've been off for a while, haven't we? I blame our writers going on strike. Yeah, who am I kidding? We don't have writers. Before we start the show, let's catch up on some of what's happened over the past month. We have to talk about the Oscars, the big slap in the face that everybody was talking about. That Eternals didn't win Best Picture. I mean, it was everybody's favorite MCU movie, and it didn't win anything. What a crying shame. Clearly, that was the biggest drama at the Oscars this year, and the only thing that anybody was talking about. Legendary comedic actor Jim Carrey has quit in acting. Unfortunately, his last movie was spent wearing red spandex trying to catch a blue CGI hedgehog with speed powers. It's kind of like if Sean Connery's last movie was Zardoz. Marvel released their new Moon Knight series starring Oscar Isaac about a Batman-esque vengeful vigilante with multiple personalities who gets powers from an Egyptian moon god. The show has been consistently entertaining so far, but one of the funniest things is that I didn't know anything about Moon Knight before starting watching the show. So I looked him up on Wikipedia, and the Wikipedia article essentially said Moon Knight might actually be the avatar of a moon god, like he says, or maybe he's just crazy. We don't know. We've got a great show for you tonight, folks. Adrian Paul's star of the Highlander series will be here at the top of the hour. There's lots to talk about, but for now, let's get to my big three. Here's Random's Big Three. Number one. The Batman, starring Robert Pattinson and Matt Reeves, secures the sequel. What are my thoughts and review of the first film coming up? Number two. I'm done. I'm quitting acting. Tell the trades it was a tremendous honor to be a part of storytelling and myth-making. Nick Cage is Nick Cage in The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, a movie that looks about as crazy as the title is Lawn. Should you see this madness coming up? Number three. And finally, The Who kicked off their massive U.S. concert tour last week and are heading to Cincinnati on May 17th. We take an exclusive in-depth look at The Who next. Matt Reeves is the Batman, starring Robert Pattinson is getting a sequel. But does it deserve it, and is the first film any good? Well, I finally had a chance to see the Batman. And you'll get my thoughts and review right here. Let's get into it. The Batman is a bleak, humorless film, and I mean that in mostly a good way. Matt Reeves looks like he took a lot of influence from Blade Runner. It's almost always raining, and there's a lot of smoke, neon lights, and a cyberpunk sort of ambience. I love Blade Runner, so this is a plus for me, mostly, but the film feels like it's set in the UK, but it's almost always raining and dark. I think the thing that stands out most is that Matt Reeves tried his best to make the most realistic Batman film ever. Whether or not that's a good thing will be up to you to decide, but even more so than the Nolan films, and those were already realistic. This film takes away as many comic book whimsical elements as possible aside from Batman himself, and makes everything grounded in reality. 
well, as grounded in reality as you can with a story about a guy that dresses like a bat and fights criminals. Even the bat suit in that mobile are super spartan, but it works to establish a very consistent tone throughout. The bat suit reminds me a lot of that realistic, semi-functional, like, bat and, like, knife-proof bat suit that that college student made a few years ago. And I think that was probably intentional. One little detail that I liked about it was that Batman's batarangs are stored in the bat symbol. That was a cool little detail. But now let's get to one of the most controversial choices from this movie. Robert Pattinson as Batman. He did a decent job! He's no Michael Keaton, but as far as live-action Batman go, he's one of the better ones, I think. Pattinson is playing this young, bitter, angry Dark Knight who's more concerned about getting vengeance than saving people. He's entirely focused on being Batman, and is essentially a recluse as Bruce Wayne. One of the good things is that they give Pattinson a very distinct character arc that where he's that he's undergoing throughout the movie where he learns to prioritize others and become like the hope for the city. There's much more attention paid to the detective aspect of Pattinson's Batman 2, which I thought was a like unique little twist. He spends a lot of time figuring out and solving the different mysteries of the plot. And most of his gear is surveillance. They don't really Batman's the world's greatest detective, but especially in a lot of the modern stories and films, they really don't emphasize that very much. Also, his bat voice, Pattinson's bat voice, won't become a meme. It doesn't sound like he's been smoking a whole Marlboro factory like Christian Bale's. He's not like, the city has showed you. It's ready for people. <laughs> I got I need some water. I really don't know why they went so over the top with that voice for Christian Bale, because in Batman Begins, it actually wasn't all that bad, but in The Dark Knight, he just decided to uh, go full, you know, um, overblown with that, and it became a meme. Getting back to um, Robert Pattinson is that the biggest thing that worried me when the film first started was that I thought they were going to have Pattinson monologuing, like Rorschach from Watchmen. And for the whole movie, he does it for the first, like, ten minutes of the film, and then, like, his monologue and just sort of stops. We'll get back to that, but it wasn't well done. Monologuing works well when it's done right, and Pattinson's Batman doesn't, sound, doesn't really stand out when he's monologuing. His Batman does work particularly well when he's playing off of Zoe Kravitz's Catwoman. They have a playful, snappy chemistry, and she's like the only person Batman can really relate to in this film. They're both, because they're both undergoing very similar issues. They actually give Zoe Kravitz's Catwoman in a lot of focus, and they, like, focus a lot on her personal plot towards the middle about finding the murderer of her friend. And it's a big part of the middle of the story. Even though, like, Anne Hathaway's take on Catwoman was executed better, in my opinion, I think Zoe Kravitz's Catwoman actually has a lot more of an important role in her story. Coming to the main villain, Paul Tano's take on the Riddler is very disturbing. If you're expecting Jim Carrey, this is about as far away from Jim Carrey as you can get. This is not a kid's movie, and the Riddler is the biggest reason for that. Paul Tano makes the Riddler a violent and very creepy serial killer that uses um, duct tape and, and other, like, you know, associated objects to kind of brutally kill his victims. It's almost like they were going for a combination from... Like, you know, between the Zodiac Killer and a violent extremist. 
who would have like a manifesto somewhere. His character being as brutal and realistic as he is helps establish the Batman's dark and bleak tone. Speaking of the like villains, Colin Farrell as the Penguin has a small role, but he looks and acts like a completely different person. Like Tom Cruise Tropic Thunder levels of makeup and prosthetics. He apparently went out to eat during filming, and nobody recognized him whatsoever. And if you've seen him in costume, you'll realize why. Like, he undergoes a very, like, you know, like, very complete um, transformation. And you would not be able to tell that that's Colin Farrell just by seeing him. Unfortunately, characters like um, Jeffrey Wright as Commissioner Gordon, and Andy Serkis, who I had a lot of hope for as Alfred, are very disappointed. Gordon more so than Alfred. Wright's Gordon um, just is very forgettable, and he is clearly struggling to fill the big shoes of Gary Ullman. Andy Serkis is given more of a, a like, attention in the plot, and they try to give him more emotional moments with Pattinson's Bruce Wayne, but both actors don't really mesh very well together, in my opinion. And Andy Serkis is a great actor. If you don't know, you know, Gollum... Caesar in um in Planet the Planet of the Apes remake. He's he's a really good like um character actor and actor in general, but he just doesn't work that well as Alfred here. Sir, so, you know, he his Alfred lacks both the emotional core of Michael Caine's Alfred from the Dark Knight trilogy, and even like the sharp wit of Jeremy Irons in the recent like DCEU films. Getting more into the negatives, I think the biggest thing that stands out, aside from the drag of the three-hour runtime, is that the movie feels very disjointed plot-wise and location-wise. It seems like there like, were very significant rewrites along the way. The movie, even at its climax, feels super small. Like, they're only using three main locations that the characters go back and forth between the whole film. Especially, they go back to this club like 20 different times. I mentioned Blade Runner earlier, and Blade Runner had a very small set, if you like look into the um, behind the scenes about it. But, with Blade Runner, Ridley Scott did a great job of making you not really notice that, and make you feel like you're in the sprawling like, city of like futuristic LA, instead of making the limits of the sets obvious. And... This film, like, you can very clearly tell they're limited to, you know, very few locations. I don't know this for sure, but I have a strong feeling the reason why the film's scope seems so smaller or than you would think it would be is because of the issues with COVID that delayed the film and probably limited some shoot-in locations. And elements like Pattinson monologuing for most of the introduction, and then it's completely and thankfully, in my opinion, dropped, make me think that there's definitely like script changes too along the way. The sound design is also inconsistent throughout. It the score mostly works, but the sound design during fight scenes seem like very muted and not impactful. I don't know what it is. Like the choreography in general is good, and some scenes really work, but like the the sound effects when like Batman's punching somebody don't seem very um impactful they don't seem they don't sound necessarily how they should and they don't stand out in any particular way so you're just kind of left uh, feeling disappointed by them even if the choreography is good overall there's a lot like better like there's a lot of good stuff here you know 
rather than bad. I would recommend the Batman, especially if you're a Batman fan looking for a new take on the character. I'd give it a 7 out of 10, and I could go for another Matt Reeves, Robert Pattinson, and team up, What like what they did here. Before we go to break, though, let's talk about the man, the myth, the legend, Nicholas freaking Cage. The one man, the only man, who could simultaneously win an Academy Award, do mushrooms with his cat, steal the Declaration of Independence, and yell at, invi at invisible iguanas. He's one of the only actors who made a whole career out of acting like a screaming psychopath. And I mean that as a compliment. I really do. I really do like Nick Cage. Nick Cage really bridges the gap between being a legitimately good actor and one of the most entertaining and memeable people you could ever watch. Whether And he's a consistent presence on, on the show. Whether you talk about me doing my Nick Cage impression, or us talking about him being cast as Dracula a month ago, or him being a judo master who has to fight aliens in that jujitsu movie... Nick Cage will always have a consistent place on the show. Well, get ready to get your tickets because Nick Cage's new cinematic opus is coming to theaters now. The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. A personal story on the level of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, with an equally long title. Nicolas Cage stars in his very method role as Nick Cage. But not just any Nick Cage, but this is Nick Cage intentionally trying to play and do an over-the-top Nick Cage performance. They have Nick Cage playing himself, Neil Patrick Harris in the movie, and he's playing himself too. And then they have Pablo Pascal playing a, like Nick Cage's number one fan, who is also a drug kingpin with a private island full of different Nick Cage film memorabilia, and it's bat crap crazy, and that's why it's amazing. It's like when Bruce Campbell played himself in My Name is Bruce, or, you know, being John Malkovich's levels of meta and irony. If you're a Nick Cage fan like myself, and even if you're not, go see this movie. It'll be one of the most entertaining comedies of the year. Nick Cage really embodies this, um, this guy who... He has a very distinctive style of just, like, over-the-top craziness in a lot of his roles. And a lot of people, you know, I think that a lot of people um, just kind of throw, throw, like, Nick Cage's performances away and say he's a bad actor. But I think overall he has a lot of range. And, like, this won't be a serious movie. This will be an intentional comedy. But, um... One of the last performances I saw him in, he actually did, he actually kind of incorporated his Nick Caginess in a, you know, in a way that worked for Colors Out of Space, which they're apparently going to be doing more Lovecraft movies, which, you know, that could be interesting. But in that film, Nick Cage, you know, starting to go um, crazy over the course of the movie actually kind of fit. So I'm curious to see how they'll handle this here. We'll be right back after a commercial break, but when we return, we are going to be doing a exclusive special on The Who and their new concert tour. And at the top of the hour, we are joined by Adrian Paul, star of the Highlander TV series. You're listening to Reels and Riffs on WWSU 106.9, Dane's Right Choice. Back in a moment. You're listening to Reels and Riffs, 
back in a moment. The Miami Valley's number one spot for film talk and classic rock. It's Reels and Riffs with Random Allen. Welcome back to Reels and Riffs. Happy to have you here. And on this day in rock history, April 29th, in 1980, Black Sabbath began their first tour with vocalist Ronnie James Dio, known better as Dio. The Who are in town for their The Who Hits Back concert tour at the TQL Stadium in Cincinnati, May 17th. And for this occasion, I decided to do something special. Enjoy. Destructive, rebellious, operatic. From the Marquee Club of London's Underground to the teenage wasteland of Woodstock, the Who were truly in a class of their own. Even with competition like the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and Led Zeppelin, the four-man team of vocalist Roger Daltrey, guitarist Pete Townsend, bassist The Ox John Entwistle, and drummer Keith Moon could still be seen for miles. From raunchy and explosive hard rock to orchestrating and epitomizing the rock opera, even 58 years later, The Who still maintains a loyal fan base that spans generations. K99's Nancy Wilson. You know, I, it was like back in the day, everybody was into the Rolling Stones over there and the Led Zeppelin, but I was like a big Who fan just because of every personality in that band is so different and so unique. You, know, you got Roger with his growling vocals and and John, who played bass like nobody else. Pete, of course, goes without saying, and Keith Moon was just insane. And could drum, you know? And could drum, yes. And was an amazing drummer. And I saw the movie, The Kids Are All Right, and I've seen it over and over and over again. I just fell in love. WHIO Sergeant Mark Bowron. You know, every guitarist has a style, and when you that's the interesting thing about playing guitar. And Pete Townsend's got it, he's got a very unique style. They describe his as being very aggressive. It's like, you know, those he does those windmill hits on a guitar. It's it's always it's a really good aggressive tone. Guitar players are always looking for that tone, that really good sound, you know, that especially with distortion. And I, I like I like Pete. Uh, Pete Townsend's got a great tone on his guitar. A lot of that has to do with what kind of amp he's using. Uh, but I've always been a big fan of his style of playing. Every time they always do one of these, who the hundred best guitarists of all time, he usually winds up in the top ten or fifteen most of the time. Pete Townsend is not a um, like what you would say like a virtuoso player, like an Eddie Van Halen or a Hendrix. Yeah, he's more of a. I th- I'd say he's more of a rhythm player, kind of like Keith Richards, but he's just got great. He's got great style, and he knows how to make the guitar fit within the context of the song. My dad, Ron Allen. I think what makes the Who so unique as a band is, in my opinion, the leads of the group are Keith Moon and John Entwistle. Their virtuoso styling is so complex. I mean, they were doing eighth notes and stuff like that, you know, in the 60s. It's just like everything runs off them. I mean, I love Daltrey and Townsend, but they're what the who is. WHIO's Chris Collins. Well, you know, I think they have a, a sound that's like no other, you know, and uh, musically, I think they have some great artists, you know, in that band, you know, and I think that's the reason why they've been able to have, you know, uh, people follow them for so long, because sometimes you get that same sound, it's generic or whatever, but they don't, and they stand out. They're very unique. Musician Alex Sater. 
those bands get a lead guitarist, and you have, you know, a, a, a group that forms a coalition that, that makes a groove, right? Well, in, in the you have, uh, you have a guitarist who is a coalition that forms a groove, and everybody moves over what the guitarist does. So they got it backwards. It's a unique sound, and uh, no one's even tried to do it, much less done it. The Who, now too following the passing of Entwistle and Moon, kicked off their first U.S. tour since the COVID-19 pandemic last Friday. This U.S. tour will be particularly notable for being the first time The Who will return to the city of Cincinnati since a tragedy in 1979 that claimed the lives of 11 people at Riverfront Coliseum. And at 7.54, we found the first bodies laying on the ground some 15 feet from the front doors. The bodies appear to have died of trauma. For anyone that fell to the ground, there was no way to get up. The crowd just walked over. There were some evidence of... The tragedy shook both the nation and fundamentally changed how concerts would function from that point forward. Despite being over 40 years ago, the event is still remembered by Ohioans to this day. My dad, Ron Allen. The tragic concert was just a regular concert, you know, no one had, I mean, we had no idea when anything had happened until we walk out of the building and every uh, media outlet that was around at the times outside and all this is going on and we have no idea that what's happened. That was um, back before science seed and back when they had festival seating. Yes. I remember you've told me in the past that like concerts you know trying to um rush to your like you know find a seat was pretty chaotic can you describe that for me well i only had one bad experience when i was uh stationed in el paso i would go up to las cruces which uh new mexico state university and um it was called the pit and you went through like a door everyone had to go through like it wasn't even a full double door I went and I saw Chicago at that time, and my feet were off the ground, probably 50 feet going through. That was the only time I was ever really worried about going through. And, and they were having, they had festival season. Yeah, yes, everyone had festival season at that time. WHIO's Chris Collins. I was, I was working in Kenton, Ohio. It was my first radio job, and I was working 12 6 shift. A guy named Tom was the evening guy. Well, he asked me the week before, he goes, hey, I got tickets for my friend. We're going to go down to Cincinnati and go to the Who concert. That's if you can cover my shift. I said, okay, because he had to owe me dearly. All right, so I was on the air at the time when the UPI news machine just went crazy. The bells were going off, and I thought, oh, my God, are we being attacked? You know, but I went down there, and I read the story, and I saw it, and I thought, first of all, I said, how's Tom doing? You know, because he went to that concert. He was at the concert. I could not believe, you know, that this was happening, you know, at Riverfront Coliseum. Because I've been there before for hockey games and other other you know uh, like concerts and things like that, you know, and I thought what could have possibly happened with the festival seating? Well, the next day he came back obviously, and I asked him. I said, Tom, thank goodness you're okay. I said, did you know what was happening outside? He goes, he goes, no man. He goes, I was too buzzed. He goes, I was inside. He goes, and they what played a set or something. He goes, next thing you know, you know, it was over. Because we didn't know what happened. Before he was an award-winning radio news anchor, WHIO's Jason Michaels was a reporter on scene. I was the news director for WCIN Radio back there. And I didn't even know the who was in town, quite frankly. Uh, in fact, uh, I began noticing 
funny talk on the police monitors. Just, But it just was language that sounded out of place like they were speaking in kind of clouded terms. I remember one of our sales guys going past the, the door to the newsroom. I, I kind of called out to him. I said, hey, Mike, what, what's going on down at the Coliseum tonight? And he said, uh, the, the who's playing down there tonight? I'm like, oh, okay. So I listened to, to the police monitors a little bit longer, and then uh, I heard a call for 15 ambulances. And I was like, 15 ambulances? Holy crap, I better get down there. So I threw my, threw my jacket on and grabbed my two-way radio and my tape recorder and uh, probably broke every speed law imaginable in the state of Ohio getting from uh, Glenwood Avenue in Cincinnati down to Riverfront. But I remember arriving there on the scene and the walkway between the Coliseum and Riverfront Stadium uh, was just strewn with purses, shoes, you know, shirts, our jackets, articles of clothing. Uh, it, it almost resembled a war zone to me. The voice of the Buckeyes and former WLW radio reporter Paul Keel spoke with Roger Jaltry shortly after the event. Yeah, it was really kind of crazy. I got sent to the uh, downtown Stouffer's Hotel in Cincinnati, which everybody had kind of become aware that's where the Who were staying. And, uh, by the time I got to the hotel, uh, a lot of national media had arrived in Cincinnati, as well as a lot of the local folks. And so myself and another radio reporter got in the elevator, went up to that floor, knocked on the door, not knowing what was going to happen. And the next thing you know, Roger Daltrey came out. And fortunately for me, it was him because I didn't know who any of the other members of the band were. The reaction was still kind of uh, shocked and stunned. Uh, he talked with us just for a few minutes about uh, they were not aware of what happened during the performance. When they came off stage prior to doing an encore, somebody had made them aware there had been a problem. Could they keep the encore short, which they did, and then when they came back after their encore, that's when they had been made aware of what had happened. And, you know, the, he was still very visibly upset. They were preparing to travel, I believe it was to Buffalo, to do a concert the very next night. And the one thing I do remember specifically that that Roger had mentioned that if they, they hadn't decided if they were going to perform. It was either the, that night or the following night. And uh, he did say that if they did end up performing, it was going to be for those 11 people who were killed. Musician Alex Sater tells his story about when he was caught in the crowd at the entrance where it happened. There's two ways to get in. There's a aerial way, which is designed after going, essentially you go to a Reds game and you're up there on, you know, above street level. You know, going over Pete Rose Way, walking over these bridges, and um, that's how I got in. That's how, that's where it happened. It happened up there at that second level, you know, between Riverfront and Riverfront Coliseum, right there where all the flags were. Whereas your dad went in downstairs on street level, you know, by, you know, by the, by the uh, river. So, he, he could have gone there and had no idea what was going on. It was, that's what the whole story was, just getting in and the chaos that it's doing. But the doors to Riverfront opened, you know, from the inside out. So even if they wanted to open them, they couldn't have opened them because the people were pushing against them. Craziness, you know, uh, back and forth. Uh, people like your dad and me, weren't the tallest people on the planet. 
uh, we were both off the floor, you know, we were, you know, we can't even touch the floor. That's, that's how out of control it was. And um, um, all of a sudden, you could, you could, it was uh, Baba O'Reilly comes on. We're going, holy crap, there it goes, we're late. Yeah, and uh, um, yeah, I was sitting so bad there. Uh, there's 20,000 people there. That's a that's a large venue. But I was there. I mean, I was there. I was touching the door there. I was touching that turnstile there. I was close enough to know that those doors opened up and didn't open in there. I uh, I uh, I was within 10 feet of 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 everyone who was hurt probably. Uh, so uh, it's you know I I. I Few people had the same perspective I did. But what can we learn from this tragedy? Uh, make sure you know how to get in and out of places. When you go to a place like that, look around. What would happen if? Where would I go? WHIO's Chris Collins. You know, it was unfortunate uh, that individuals died, you know, because of what happened. But when you think about it, but it, it has helped. You know, with the the outlawing of the festival seating, and we're not have we're not seeing what we saw at that time, where people were crushed. You know, in that mass of humanity, you know, making their yeah. way into that concert. You know, another thing you were talking about the Who coming back, they've been wanting to get them back in Cincinnati, but they would not perform at that arena because Roger Daltrey, he said that was respect, you know, to those victims, you know, that night uh, and back in 1979, and he says that we're not going to go back to that venue out of that respect. He says, but now we're going to be able to come back. And he goes, and he goes, I hope it will help with the healing. It's important that we look back, learn, and remember what happened as we join The Who one more time in Cincinnati. Because seeing The Who is an experience like no other. K99's Nancy Wilson. I was never fortunate enough to see the original. I, I saw Kenny Jones. I was saw um, The Who with Kenny Jones several times. But uh, I feel Roger really interpreting... Pete's lyrics. Just that screaming he can do like nobody else. And even now, in his late 70s, he can still hit those notes, which is just amazing. To, to see and to hear swinging the microphone like he does, and you know, Pete doing the windmills. The lyrics, Pete's lyrics, you know, and, and I know that Pete wrote most of everything, and I love Pete as a solo artist as well. They they have they have meaning to them. The Who concert in Indianapolis was an experience I never experienced in, uh, at any concerts, and I was probably at probably a hundred concerts in my life. People were singing with every song, and they loved it that we were doing. I mean, it was just you know, it was like we were part of the show. It was really, really great. Most concerts aren't like that. The Who are at the TQL Stadium in Cincinnati, May 17th. Get your tickets now. A special thank you to Nancy, Jason, Sarge, Chris, Mr. Keels, my dad, and Alex for making this segment possible. This week's song of the week, if you haven't guessed, is Bob O'Reilly, my favorite song by The Who. I'm Random Allen, and you're listening to Reels and Riffs on WWSU 106.9, Dane's Right Choice. Back in a moment.
We now return to Reels and Riffs with Random Allen on WWSU 106.9 FM. Welcome back to Reels and Riffs. Today we are joined by a very special guest. He's an accomplished actor in TV, film, theater, martial artist, dancer, fight choreographer, founder of the Peace Fund Charity, and sword expert. You probably know him best as Duncan McLeod from the long-running Highlander television series, Highlander Endgame and Highlander The Source. Adrian Paul, everybody, how are you doing today, sir? Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are. <laughs> yeah, I'm good, I'm good. So, you originally moved to the U.S. to pursue a career in modeling and dance before starting in various theater productions and eventually moved to roles in television. When did you realize that you had a true passion for acting specifically, and what caused you to shift focus from your career in dance and modeling to an acting career? Please came over. I'd already started doing uh, I, uh, classes and, uh, and stuff in England and in New York, and... Uh, that was kind of where I wanted to come over. I, you know, I had modeling and dancing as a backup in case anything failed. Um, so that was why I came over. I had that ability to do that, but my idea was to, you know, come over and, and continue my acting uh, choices or, or, or a career in acting, should I say. The real time I found was when I actually was in a class. Um, it's funny because, you know, you kind of really get to know what it is you really want to do because um, it's a gut feeling and uh, I sat in a class and I was watching a scene so uh, an acting teacher who's no longer around actually his name was Roy London uh, awesome teacher um, and um, we were watching this scene I said this is what I've got to do this I, I know this is this is it this is I mean I'd love being on stage period you know and and that was what drove me originally. I did Vaudevillian type of stuff. I did dance, as you said. Uh, we did tours all over Europe and stuff. And you know, I love being on stage. And I knew that was kind of what I what excited me, but not really what touched me. And that was the difference was, you know, getting into acting classes and really understanding how to uh, unfold the human psyche, if you like. And that's really what um, sparked your interest originally. Yeah, yeah, that was really what it was. Yeah. So I want to pilot. I like to pivot to Highlander specifically. When you were first brought onto the series, from what I've read, the original plan was for you to take over the role of like Connor McCloud, originally played by Christopher Lambert. But I read that it was your ideal to create an original character instead. How did you work to portray Duncan McCloud as different from Connor? And how would you describe Duncan's growth and journey as a character during the show? Well, Duncan McCloud came about. I was originally supposed to be Connor McCloud. The only reason I became Duncan McLeod was because Christophe Lambert was uh, available for the pilot. So they said, well, we're going to have two Connors, we'll just make a new one, we'll make a, a new character, which I was very happy about because you're right, it made me be able to create a, a brand new character that, uh, you know, I, um, I could uh, evolve, if you like. And um, being in a series, it um, allowed you to do that because in an hour and a half movie, you get an idea of a character, but you don't really get the inner workings and immortality has such a large how can I put it has a large scope of things that you could touch on which we did during the series and you know when we first started we would okay this is the character that we created in the in the in the movies and now we have the opportunity to create something a little different in the series and we were all kind of trying to figure out what that was and it was only really 
until the middle of the first season that uh, people kind of started understanding what Highlander was about. Um, you know, it's not a show about the, the, the bad guy of the week, and that's one huge mistake a lot of shows make. Um, that you know, sometimes they work because they're procedural type shows. Um, you know, where you have the same format and the bad guy of the week comes in or the problem comes in every week and you have to solve it. Highlander wasn't that. Highlander was much more in-depth. It had the romance, it had the history, it had the fighting, it had all that type of stuff, which were really sort of, um, uh, what's the word? Um, the, the essence of what, what Highlander was all about. And so as we uh, changed our, because we originally had different showrunners, and we had David Abramowitz come in in the middle of the first season, and he really started taking the scripts and turning them around a little bit to making it more about the characters and how to evolve that. And eventually, you start seeing, you know, how McCloud starts developing, and you know that was a lot up to David Abramowitz how that happened. Although you know I was talking to him each week on each different script as to okay, how what 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 side of Duncan McCloud do we want to show this week and and uh, what have we not done and, and what's the essence of this episode so it really became character driven rather than story driven and it really helped that you were in like kind of a lawn form media or medium like television as opposed to like just um, an hour and a half movie where you could really develop like co or develop um, Duncan's character yeah exactly that's that's what the um the, the series was able to do I mean, you have 119 episodes of able to, to be able to develop a character like that and that uh, you know that's up that's 119 hours compared to an hour and a half so you know you've got a lot more time to be able to do that and the things that you know um, you wouldn't necessarily think to be able or be able to do in a, in a movie you know what's it like to have a, a guy who's um, you know a, a former friend and becomes uh an enemy, somebody that you love turns into somebody you didn't expect, somebody dies. I mean, there's so many different facets. Um, you know, uh, yeah, it's all, all very um, uh, different when you are able to, you know, create um, different series in different moments as well as the other characters in there, which were, you know, pivotal to sort of show um, the, the aspects of what immortality was really, really about. That makes sense. Um, they brought you back to reprise your role as Duncan for like Highlander Endgame and for Highlander's Source. Um, I was wondering what was the biggest differences between working on those feature films compared to like, an, an episode of the TV show, and were you ultimately happy with the end of Duncan's story? Well, the difference is only about scope, really. I mean, there there was no difference in. I mean, it was like shooting the show. I mean. You know, we shot that in eight days, and the, and the film shoots in you know thirty days or twenty five days, depending on which one you had. I, I can't remember what our shooting schedule was, but um, I mean, there was no real difference. The only difference, as I said, is scope. You know, the sets are slightly bigger, and the action scenes tend to be uh, a little more um, uh, larger. And you know, obviously, working with Christoph in, on Endgame was fun because you know taking over. The, the mantle, so to speak, was um, something I hadn't thought of for for many years. 
and uh, you know I, I love working with Chris anyway he's a great person and uh, he's always full of life and um, and jokes around much like I do so we got on very well so it's always pleasant when you do that so there was and I had that experience with the other co-stars on Highlander I want to um, pivot to some of your choreography work because for Highlander I know that you worked with the famed Bob Anderson to help develop the fight choreography in the series and then later you took an active role and became a fight choreographer yourself um in both fight scenes that you've acted in and choreographed, how do you work to tell a story through your fight choreography? And how does your martial arts background influence the way you approach the fights you work on? Well, um, Bob Anderson was a fantastic teacher. I mean, he was, you know, he wasn't just a fight choreographer. He was a, a painter, in a sense. I mean, he's much like my, um, my martial arts uh, shifu who, um, you know, was an actual painter. And I said to him, I asked him at one point, I said, you know, what is, what is it? He said, well, as a martial artist, you, you don't just paint with one color. You take many different colors, many different arts, and you mold them for, for, for yourself. And Bob Anderson was the same. He would go into a place and he would take a fight and look at the location and create the fight around the location. And that's something that was very valid for me to look at for my later years on the choreography because then it became about not just the location it was then the actor's choice as to what the dialogue was between the characters because a sword fight is only as good as what the what the characters are doing to each other do does one want to kill the other one does one not want to kill the other one does the other one is was one afraid of the other one so all those acting choices have to be made in a sword fight and some of the moves have to be uh, adjusted for that particular type of fight so there's a lot of times, I mean, how many times you got on a, on a, in a movie now and you come out of a big action movie and you've seen it and you kind of are left wanting or you kind of go, yeah, it was okay, but something was missing. And the reason for that is there's a lot of explosions, a lot of fights, etc., and, and that's great, but the story stops, the dialogue stops, and then the fighting begins. That's not how it should happen. The, the dialogue, the, the fighting is a continuation of the dialogue that preceded it. So you have to really look at, and that's what really affected me as a choreographer later, um, you know, in other features and other things that I've done, as well as in the short experience that I do now. I mean, I, I choreograph all those numbers. I, I, I write the scripts that we do in, in the short experience. And, um, you know, th that really, uh, the location and then the character really sort of is, is key before you really can sort of say, okay, this is the fight that you're actually going to perform. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, myriad of different things that um, you know you really have to sort of look at TV series are shot at sort of such a fast pace that the only real type of action that they concentrate on are the leads that are there the, the actors that come in their story's just already done we'll, we'll get the, the, the stunt guys to do the action and uh, we're done and they, they do the same type of action over and over and over again because they don't have time to sort of you know say okay this character will be behaving in this manner or this is what he would do in this particular because it's just too fast so you know sometimes in, in tv shows you you lose that uh, personalization of a sword fight you know the story has to continue during the action sequences 
We're almost out of time, but I wanted to talk before um, we wrap up about the Peace Fund, the charity that you founded. In its mission, sta- in its mission statement, um, you say that it's to protect, aid, and educate children living in extraordinarily difficult circumstances. I was wondering what inspired you to create the Peace Fund charity initially, and what accomplishments of the Peace Fund are you most proud of personally? Well, Peace Fund's been around for about 28 years now, and... Uh... It started off, it, the acronym of the, the Peace Fund, Peace stands for Protect, Educate, Aid Children Every Day. And it came up through the, you know, as you become an actor and you become successful, you get a lot of people that blow smoke, etc. And uh, a lot of kids also get very um, starry-eyed. And my feeling was, you know, I wanted to sort of be able to utilize the, the fame and the... Um, the fortune that I've been given and pass it on and I thought well the kids are the ones that are going to be you know utilizing that that inspiration if you like so I I created it to sort of help kids now we've been in several different countries um, you know we've um, we have a radio show that still exists that uh, we've done over 600 episodes of, of uh, 600 hours of um, podcasts called Peace Fund Radio um, you know, so I'm very proud of that because you know that's all charity driven. Um, we deal with all all different things, whether it comes from autism to homelessness to foster care. Um, we've you know we've been in Hungary, Romania, Cambodia, um, Thailand, <laughs> the United States. Um, we've been in a number of places, and I, I'm just proud of the people that have, have come along and actually helped, and and also the people that have helped donate to it because you know it's really. Um, it's really been a charity effort. It's, our funding has really been very limited uh, from grants or anything. I don't, I don't even think we've had very many, if any. And so it's all the people that have been connected with us that we've been able to do um, a massive amount of stuff, you know, like build uh, uh, dental clinics or, or playgrounds or uh, school systems or, you know, uh, help the schooling system in Cambodia through because they've been destroyed and we helped teachers across the border from Australia move in there. So we partnered with different organizations. I think that was part of the thing that I think was very um, apparent to me was the fact that you, you have many different charities out there that are doing the very same thing. And if they could just connect with each other, which is what Peace Farm Radio really does, is kind of tells you what is out there and what other charities can connect with each other charity, the other charity. And those are the things that uh, became very apparent. It's like Facebook, really. I mean, it connects people that haven't known each other uh, for years or haven't seen each other for years, and you, you're able to find information that you were otherwise not able to know about. And the, the funny thing is, most of the time, it's right around the corner. You know, you, the only time you really need something is when it happens to you. You know, so... Um, Peace Fund had that, and it's it's uh you know it's it's uh we're still moving up forward since the pandemic we start, slowed down everything because most of that stuff was in person, so we um had a school makes a uh, sorry um kids read the lead program which was uh, a reading program where celebrities would go in and, and act out stories for kids so obviously going into kids schools now was very very difficult and even before you had to go in to actually have a tuberculosis test and uh, a background check on and a, you know it's very hard to ask a celebrity oh can, I, can you go and can we get do a background check on you so sometimes like LAUSD was very uh, harder on doing that so we had to look at other programs that allowed us to go in without having some of the limitations that uh, some of the schooling systems uh, allowed us to do so 
now we're back. We're we're trying to reinstall that program as well as being online. So uh, it's been a it's been a, a great journey for us, uh, and um, you know I hope we can continue it. I think that's a really good note to end on. As a Highlander fan, it's been amazing having you on the show, Adrian. Do you have anything to say to our listening audience at Wright State before we go? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Didn't mean to put you uh, on the spot there. You know, the, no, no, you know, I mean, anything to tell you. I mean, the, 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 I mean my daily thoughts are always on my vlog. So, <laughs> so um, most of the time I tell people the, the real simple things, really sort of follow what you really believe. You know, it's, if it's really in your gut, it's true. And your head doesn't rule your heart as well as your gut. And so I think those are the things that really um, I try to sort of um, instill in my kids and as well as in some of the vlogs and the, the, the stuff we have on our, in, our social, in our short experience. Um, the sites, we, we talk about that, you know, that mm-hmm. there is nothing you cannot do if you put your mind to it. You know, it doesn't mean if you... If you fail today, it doesn't mean you're a failure. It means you just have to keep trying, and eventually one day you will succeed. It's really very simple. Actor Adrian Paul, everybody. Adrian Paul is currently one of the instructors for the Sword Experience, or Sword XP, which is a sword choreography class. Go check that out at swordxp.com. That's our show, folks. That's our extra late show, folks. Everybody have a good night. You're listening to Reels and Riffs on WWSU 106.9, Dayton's Right Choice. This has been Reels and Riffs with Random Allen. If you missed an episode, tune in to Reels and Riffs on Spotify. Follow Reels and Riffs on Instagram and Facebook. See you next week on Wright State's one and only radio station, WWSU 106.9 FM, Dayton's Right Choice.